there aren't enough Jedi to protect the Republic. We're keepers of the peace, not soldiers. I will create a grand army of the Republic to counter the increasing threats of the Separatists. You've gotten this Cornwall has. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Whose Filmography Is It Anyway? Where today the clones start their attack. I mean, there's only one attack, so maybe a bit of a misnomer on the name here, but they attack nonetheless. With me, as always, my friend. Josh Page. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for another marvelous introduction as always. Yeah, um, I was gonna make a joke. Josh? Josh, me so happy to see you, Yusa. But, <laughs> you know, the less Jar Jar, the better, because he really yeah. screwed the pooch this one. Um, yes, and not because fans uh, hated him so much in the first one that caused him to have significantly chopped running time. Not um, only did it cause him to have chopped running time, but George <laughs> Lucas actually made him the villain of this movie. Um, or a villain of this movie. He, he can be viewed as a villain, for sure, because without him... Uh, this story would have gone a lot differently, and we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna cover that today in this very long adventure in a galaxy, very very far away. Yes, this one uh, is a bit meatier than the last one in terms of just how much plot unfolds. Because uh, right off the bat, I gotta say the winner of this one is a uh, Sheev Palpatine here. His his plan and plotting and scheming, which are the same thing according to Tyrion, they're unfolding pretty openly in this one. The uh, the chess pieces are moving forward for sure, to say the least. He's playing quick chess in this one. He's like, <laughs> he's trunk. He's uh, he's fucking everyone in this one. It's pretty it's just, good. He's just bending him over and taking his lightsaber and you know just doing his thing. Um, <laughs> yes, it is a wild time. I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, it's certainly one, I think I lumping in with The Phantom Menace, it's one that <laughs> there's a lot to be said on both sides of it, positive and negative, but we will, uh, yeah. you know. We'll get into final discussion later. So why don't, because like you said, there's a lot to talk about. Why don't we just jump right into production here? Let's do it. Let's do it to it. Once again, the budget was $115 million, but this time the box office returns were $653.8 million dollars. Which in 2002, pretty good. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. You know, yeah. the we now perceive movies that don't cross a billion dollars to be failures. But in 2002, this is like a huge sum of money. Huge. Itch. Huge. Very bigly. Um, so the film was... Sorry, let me start that over because this was not shot on film. This movie was actually a huge risk for George Lucas and people thought he was a madman. They called him the Mad Titan <laughs> because for the first time ever, he shot a film entirely digitally. No film, no celluloid, no 35 millimeter. George had been predicting since 1989 that the digital revolution was gonna be taking over. 
In fact, when he was making the Indiana Jones Chronicles, he was pushing his team hard into the realm of digital technology. But the cameras were not ready until this movie. In fact, he even wanted to shoot Phantom Menace digitally, but couldn't because the cameras were not ready. In 1997, when they were filming Phantom Menace, the cameras were only good enough to capture three frames per second, where in this, they finally got to the full 24, which is the normal uh, frame rate, 24 frames per second, for those who don't know. Something that blew everyone away, because again, this is 2002, this is like brand new technology, is the fact that people could watch the dailies right after the scene was shot. They can watch what was happening and go, okay, let's tweak this a little bit and go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I will say it's it's a testament to, and I think, I think we kind of touched on this last week, but I think it's a testament to how much George actually, like kind of, I don't want to say light years ahead, that would be a little too uh, on the nose, but it's, he was very ahead of his time, at, at least in a technological level, because even though a lot of the digital effects themselves don't hold up in Star Wars, as we've seen in the 1997 VHS editions, and even the 2004 DVD editions of the original trilogy, and of course the the, the CGI in, in clones and so on and so forth, despite what it actually looks like, um, you know, George seems to, to know exactly, like you said, to know where it was going. And you could tell even from like the original trilogy with what he was doing with what he had he just knew how to play his hand pretty well I think he knows like his budget and he knows like exactly where to tell his story because he could one of like predict one of the main things about George Lucas and I think I said this last week is that he loves to push the boundaries of what is and is not possible to be captured on film and that from what I heard, again, I have no, he never really commented publicly, but through James Cameron, we have heard that some of George Lucas's frustration with the Disney eras, predominantly with The Force Awakens, was the fact that there was no pushing of the boundaries in terms of technology or story. We'll talk, I mean, we'll have a lot to say about that when we get there, but it's, it's, I mean, it's true because George was, and it's, and it's a whole, it's a whole testament to the prequels, but it's like really just, you can knock them for all that they are, but like, I, I feel like it's hard to say that they're not at least creative or uh, uh, filled with imagination and from, from a technical standpoint, um, you know, from a digital, a visual standpoint, I mean, it's, well, this just, is also where he gets some feel. of the criticism because some of the criticism yeah against these movies are he kind of played too much with the CG and too much of course. with the unreal. Um, and and I, I do agree with that to, to an extent. We'll, we'll dive into that. Yeah, it's... well, we, let's talk about the VFX now. Um, mm -hmm. George said in 1977, he needed to rein himself in because obviously there were limits to what he could and couldn't do. He was shooting film and he had a very low budget, but now he didn't have to because he had all the money in the world and he had all the technology he wanted. So uh, he could go as crazy as his imagination wanted to. So while working with digital creatures, the scene was done once with the actors who were providing the voices. So let's just use Watto as an example. They would shoot the scene once with the actor playing Watto and then refilm it without that actor. And the other actors like Hayden Christensen would have to pantomime to nothing in front of them. 
which Ewan McGregor deemed to be a nightmare, quote unquote. Uh, a, a lot of blue screens. <laughs> I, I can imagine. Yeah, a lot of blue screens were used. Uh, there were a lot of markers placed around the blue screens so that everyone can kind of conceptualize where everything was going to be. George went to ILM every Tuesday and Thursday to watch what was going on. Uh, yes, they filmed on locations. Uh, they filmed in Italy, Spain, the UK, uh, Tunisia again, of course, because, you know, when you go to Tatooine, you got to go to Tunisia. But a lot of the backgrounds of these real locations were touched up. George, it's actually kind of funny now, but George was like, you still need to go to locations because the technology isn't there yet. And it's amazing because now you look at something like Mandalorian where they film the entire thing on a soundstage in Manhattan Beach in California, which is yeah. wild because of I, the technology, the technological leap. I mean, it's come such a long way and that's kind of like what I was, well, I was piggybacking off of what you were saying about George, um, you know, kind of knowing where it was going because it's almost like, I don't know, time is against him in, in terms of him wanting to tell the story exactly when he wanted to tell it, because it's like, you know, there are some good, you know, it, it has admirable, like, I mean, specific, talking about clones specifically, it has admirable, you know, visual sequences at some parts, but like, really, it's like, I, it would be a totally different movie if it was made today, like visually. Yep. And you see that through Mandalorian. I, yeah. I Again, unconfirmed, but George Lucas seems to love Mandalorian uh, because not just the story and that his boy uh, Dave Filoni and is working on the show, but because of the technological leaps that they are making on the production. I don't know if you've seen the technology they're using because you didn't watch the gallery show, but it's astounding what they're able to do. Mm -hmm. For this movie though, Attack of the Clones, models and miniatures were still used because it was easier and faster still at this point to build models, film through the models, because the models were still huge. They were a 10th scale. So they were still taking up almost, an, they were taking up entire rooms. Um, That's amazing. But they would film like the sequences on, like on the models. And then they would film the actors on blue screens. And then all they would have to do is replace the blue screens with the model captures that they did. And That's awesome. If you watch on the Blu-ray for Attack of the Clones, there's this amazing documentary. Again, he does amazing documentaries on all these things. But there's this huge Geonosian Coliseum model that was built. It's massive and it's beautiful. Like what you see on screen was real they made a model of it and then they just captured the model in fact they had to split the model in half because it had to expedite the capturing of it for the film crew um it's astounding to me that's pretty wild yeah like i said george went to italy uh spain and the uk but he said that he was uh actually vacation scouting in italy while he was on vacation on, at Lake Cuomo, which is where they filmed Padme's villa. I, I will say that I, maybe it's just that that whole sequence, or maybe that whole the whole story with with Padme's uh, and and Anakin's you know whole side quest love 
adventure, whatever you want to call it. But it is actually feels like one of the more visually foreign films for his first Star Wars, at least for the prequels. Like it feels like they literally went to, you can almost feel like they, they literally went to other countries and they're actually, it's small, it's, it's, it's a small feeling because so much of this is just like you said, it's blue screen or green screen, but it, um, it, it, it feels like they expanded. It feels like they, they globe trotted a little further than they did yeah. in uh, Phantom Menace. They went to more locations, but they went to each location for like a week each, which is even more astounding. Uh, mm-hmm. For such a big production, they like really, it was like a film it, okay, great, you got it, done situation, which I guess you could kind of tell through the acting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for Anakin, George wanted a boyish personality with a James Dean qualities, which I guess he landed on Hayden Christensen for. Uh, Hayden read for the part with no real expectations of getting it, but within a week of the screen test, he got a phone call from George asking him to do the role. He did his own stunts, which is pretty good. You, you know, I, it's sad how much shit he got for these movies, but he did pour a lot of his heart and soul into them. I'm not going to blame him wholeheartedly for what went wrong with this acting performance. Well, uh, as we said, I don't know if we said it last week, where we've talked about how a lot of the problem with the actors in Star Wars all across the bo- across the board is that George isn't a great director for actors. He's well, a great director for storytelling, but like when it comes to acting, it's to me, it's a couple of folds. Was he is Hayden a great actor to begin with? I won't say he's the greatest actor ever, but you watch something like Shattered Glass, and you're like, okay, there's chops here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but you have um, a mediocre actor at, at the forefront. But what makes me go, it can't possibly be the actors, is you have Ewan McGregor and Natalie Portman, who are like two great actors giving mediocre performances as well. So you have George Lucas, who is not known, like you said, to be an actor's director. Because as I mentioned last week, he hates being on set. He hates it. It's like his least favorite thing ever. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then on top of it, you're acting in front of green, uh, in front of blue screens, not knowing what the fuck you're really looking at. And there's a sequence in the movie when they're running through the Geonosian factory. And Natalie Portman said in this documentary, yeah, I was just running on like, treadmilled sets I had no idea what I was actually filming it's and tough it's tough to act when you have no fucking idea what is actually what is like supposed to be going on around you she said yeah I just winged it like what yeah one um, of the um one of the top notes of, for hating Christensen is that uh, as they said that he enjoyed doing the bar scene um early on because he said it was one of the few times that it was an actual set and not green screen yeah so you got to imagine even though George had this whole and that's why you know saying he's a good director for for a story and for visuals and whatnot it's like you got to imagine it's really like um you know it's just a gamble to try and get people like you're saying like top actors you know to really even like you McGregor and Natalie Portman like you're saying like really good actors to really give it their all when they're just there's nothing behind them but blue and green screen yeah clearly (laughs) Ewan loved doing this movie more than most but because he's coming back as Kenobi and only says fond things about Star Wars, but uh, it's clear he is not giving the greatest performance of his career, especially in this one. You know, in Revenge of the Sith, obviously he's he has doing that the best moment, with what but, he had. You know, 
Samuel L. Jackson, <laughs> it's funny because Samuel L. Jackson on set uh, was talking to George Lucas about lightsabers and George is like, yeah, well, the bad guys get red and the good guys get green or blue. And Samuel Jackson is like, uh, you think I could maybe get a purple one? And George <laughs> just like takes him in and he's like, you might get a purple one. You might. It's honestly like, it's so great. It's it's like great because it's the, <clears throat> I think it's the only, up until this point, it's the only time. I don't know if the color, oh no, the colors do change down the road and like Clone Wars and stuff like that. But no, as far as we have seen in the entire canon thus far, He's the only one with a purple lightsaber. With a, that's what I was gonna say. He's the only one with a purple one. So it's kind of cool that they just did it upon request. Lucasfilm has kind of made that a character attribute for Samuel Jackson's for Mace Windu. Like his ability to have a purple lightsaber yeah. means that he is a rarer Jedi than most. And they kind of like have it's expunged cool. upon that in the later canon. But yeah, they like <clears throat> ran with it. Yeah, um, it's interesting throughout all of Star Wars, how retroactively some of the canon works. Like they throw shit in the movies and TV shows and all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, why did that happen? Like the Rogue One, we'll get to it in a couple weeks, but why was there a default in the Death Star? Oh, how about they planted it there, you know? Yeah, no, it's cool. It's cool because it patches up what otherwise would have been not necessarily plot holes, but would have been like, just kind of sh- like you could like moments you or, or, or act that you could kind of just shrug off. Yeah, there's a um, lot of patchwork. But of in terms of Samuel Jackson, my favorite note in uh, IMDb is that apparently, according to Jackson, that the words bad motherfucker are engraved on the hilt of his lightsaber. Uh, <laughs> the same as his wallet uh in in uh, reference to pulp fiction. pulp fiction so i don't know if that's true but that's what he said <laughs> i don't know if it's true or not but i do know that um brie larson and samuel jackson are close because they yeah. did captain marvel together and then brie mm-hmm. larson uh directed a film with him as the star mm-hmm. and she said that she actually got to play with the lightsaber he used on set he amazing. got to keep it absolutely amazing uh the sound ben burr came back he did the sound from the original star wars movies in 1976 and matt wood came in to help him because he because ben didn't understand how this computer age worked he said he felt like rip van winkle who woke up in the future one day uh for those who don't know wood is big in the star wars behind the scenes and in front of the camera situation he plays uh bib fortuna in the Phantom Menace, and may come back for another one. And he was the voice of General Grievous as well. Uh, so he's big within the Star Wars milieu outside of just the sound. Um, costuming. Uh, they George said in the original trilogy, the Empire was reigning. So people only wore gray, white, or black, very basic authoritarian colors. But this is the prequel era. So the costume should call attention to themselves, which is why Padme has such intricate and beautiful, beautifully designed clothing. George actually designed himself one costume for this movie. And the costume he designed was the bustier that Natalie Portman wore at the dinner sequence between her and Anakin. The one that looks like (laughs) she's literally like, you know, coming on to Anakin real hard. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, I, I'm i not victim shaming because she's not a victim, but like 
you, you, if you're sending the signal like we're off limits here, you're wearing the wrong outfit here. <laughs> I would love to see like a parody scene of that. Like I'm picturing like an SNL, like a digital digital short or a sketch or something where they're both like, they're just like, like you see like candles lit and it's immediately this like romantic scene. And it's like, we can't be together. It's like, it's not, it's forbidden. We're here for professional purposes only, but it's like, mm, it's a little warm in here. Let me get comfortable. And they just keep slowly undressing and they've got like these really like skimpy outfits on. Well, that's the whole thing. You know, she's wearing this really tight black outfit by a fire at night in the most romantic place of the whole fucking galaxy. And you're just like, um... And you're telling we, me no here? like We must be professional. You're sending real mixed signals here, you know? <laughs> Again, as we will t- talk about in this movie, there's a lot of situations where she says no, and Anakin does not take no for an answer, and it's very uncomfortable and really bad. 50 no's and a yes means But, yes. you know, if you you got to put yourself in the mind of some, the, the characters in some situations. And, you know, if I'm on a date with Natalie Portman or Padme, and she's wearing that outfit or in her romantic villa in Italy, Naboo, and you're by a fire. What am I supposed to expect? What am I supposed to think? You know, I, other and than like, like you said, it's not victim shaming. No one's saying she's asking for it because that's obviously not, you know, the way that normal human beings talk, but it's like, I, it's, it's very strange to think that you're here on a professional, not even courting, it's prof- you know, a, a professional security or however they, they refer to it. You know, If you're going to keep things professional, don't wear a corset bustier to dinner. That's all I'm saying. It's, it's science. It's science. <laughs> uh, that's all I really got for... The- only um, note I have so got, is yeah. uh, is that due to much of the animosity aimed towards Jar Jar Binks and Phantom Menace, the working title of this movie was Jar Jar's Big Adventure, which I uh, <laughs> I can't or stress just trolling enough. people before trolling was a thing. I mean, I, I gotta give it. I gotta give credit to George for hearing the fans and saying, "Hey, you complained about Jar Jar, so I'm going to give you significantly less Jar Jar," and it actually works because this is not. The whole atmosphere and mood of this movie, and we'll, we'll get to it at the end, is a lot less silly. It's supposed to be a lot less silly than Phantom Menace. Phantom Menace is supposed to be kid-friendly. It's supposed to be adventurous. It's supposed to be like a kind of a entertaining romp. So Jar Jar fits in kind of perfectly, even if he is obnoxious. We're so, not covering it because I just don't really want to right now, maybe next week or the week the after. The theory that he's a Sith? No, but um, <laughs> George Lucas had a lot of sour grapes coming out of these movies i mean rightfully so people were deeming him like the devil incarnate but some of the comments george has about the prequel reception are just like okay my guy like calm down (laughs) you know he's like i gave them this they hated it i gave them that they hated it like we didn't hate everything george you're like really taking this to heart here. And, you know, it's hard not to because these are, he, he wrote them and directed them, which may have been part of the problem. But sure. It, again, I don't want to get into final thoughts about maybe he should have let someone else direct this one, but, you know, maybe they but, would have hated it a little less. <laughs> either way, he had a sense of humor about some of it with uh, teasing Char Jar's big adventure. If only we could have had that, you know, but. <laughs> Cha-cha. Uh, oh man, but so that's all I got. That's all I got as well. So then, are you ready to get into the actual plot of the movie? Let's dive in, Stephen. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, there was unrest in the Galactic Senate. 
Several thousands of solar systems have declared their intentions to leave the Republic. This separatist movement, under the leadership of the mysterious Count Dooku, has made it difficult for the limited number of Jedi Knights to maintain peace and order in the galaxy. Senator Amidala, the former Queen of Naboo, is returning to the Galactic Senate to vote on the critical issue of creating an army of the Republic to assist the overwhelmed Jedi. So what's kind of ironic is you were just mentioning how George took in some of what the criticisms were about Phantom Menace and tinkered with it, but some of it he didn't. You know, like one of the critiques was there was too much politicking in the Phantom Menace. So what did he do? He ratcheted up the politicking again in this one. He's like, let's give the people, they just didn't understand. Let's give people more politics. And I'm not listen, complaining. Listen, I love the politics, the politics of this movie. We talked Again. about that last week, yeah. No, and this one more so than The Phantom Menace. I love the politicking of it, but a lot of people don't. Yeah. Anyway. Well, they don't know what they want. No, people never know what they want. Once again, Padme Amidala's <laughs> Natalie Portman's life is in danger. Upon arrival on Coruscant, her, neb- her Nubian yacht explodes, killing a devil. Uh, rule number one in the Star Wars universe, never be Natalie Portman, not Padme's double. It's just not going to end well. <laughs> it, it never seems to end well. She never seems to be safe. Um, Chancellor Palpatine, Ian McDiarmid, is meeting with the Jedi Council about the growing threat of war. Mace Windu, Samuel L. Jackson, reminds the Chancellor. You must realize there aren't enough Jedi to protect the Republic. We're keepers of the peace, not soldiers. Yoda, Frank Oz, warns, The dark side clouds everything. Impossible to see. The future is. The meeting is cut short when the Loyalist Committee enters the chambers. Padme, wasting no time, believes that Count Dooku is behind her attack. Mace reminds her that Dooku was a Jedi once and isn't capable. Bad call, my guy. Bad call. <laughs> Something about this movie and even Revenge of the Sith that's really funny is Padme is clearly the smartest character because she seems to have figured out this riddle long before the Jedi. Maybe it's Count Dooku. Lady, oh, it can't be Count geez. Dooku. And then in the next one, she's like, what if the system and government we're working with has actually fallen and we're working for the wrong side? You know, she figures this she's shit the out. Only and one, no, she's the only one who gets it. Like, And part of the problem with the Jedi at this particular moment, and something that Palpatine took advantage of, is their blindness to the larger universe. They have blinded themselves through politicking to not to turn off their ability to like sense the impending threat. And even just like, they're so arrogant. That's really Mm -hmm. the problem. Their arrogance is taken over. Taking advantage of this crossover, Palpatine recommends Padme receive Jedi protection from an old friend, Master Kenobi. And he gives one of my favorite lines too. He's like, the thought of losing you is unbearable. (laughs) Unbearable. I love it. So Um, good. So, so, so sneaky. On the elevator to Padme's luxurious townhouse, which it is very luxurious, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Ewan McGregor, senses how nervous his apprentice Anakin Skywalker, Hayden Christensen, is. The awkwardness begins as soon as Anakin sees Padme, saying that she has grown, quote, more beautiful. I mean, for a senator. Padme knocks him down, saying that he will always be the boy 
uh, the boy she met on Tatooine. Once again, Padme gets down to brass tacks, wanting answers to the assassination attempt, not protection. Obi-Wan charmingly rebuffs this. Anakin argues against his master's logic, imploring they mm -hmm. are Jedi. Investigating is part of their mandate. The conversation is dropped and Padme goes to bed. Obi-Wan is pissed because Padme has turned off the cameras in her room, which, can you blame her? You know, Anakin was literally eye-fucking her <laughs> two seconds beforehand. Like, I wouldn't want cameras in my room either. Um, in their downtime, Anakin tells his master that once again, he is having uh, dreams of his mother suffering, which is why he would rather think of Padme. Obi-Wan tells his apprentice to be mindful of his feelings. Just then, poisonous worms are about to attack his apprentice, uh, are about to attack his uh, attack Padme. Anakin in time kills the insects. Obi-Wan jumps out the window, grabbing the droid. <laughs> Bold move. To quote General really, Grievous from the next right one. Into it. To quote General Grievous in Revenge of the Sith, you are a bold one, Kenobi. Like, uh, <laughs> the adrenaline pumping chase through Coruscant leads to the capture of Zam Wessel, uh, Liana Walsman. And I didn't cover a lot of it in here, but the chase through Coruscant is really cool. That is. I was just going to say, because I, I know it's not just, just described at length here, but it's. Well, it's, I, it's not like a lot of plot. You know, I'm trying to just get no, through the plot. But, but right, no, I, of I did course. I want to make a note that it is a really cool sequence, if not too long, though. I, I was just going to just going to talk about it and for a movie that takes a lot of time to slow down until the end. It takes a lot of time to, to slow down its story to explore what the characters are doing and speaking and whatnot. Um, that whole sequence is amazing. Even just from a visual standpoint, all like the neon colors, you really get this sense. And this is what I was saying about it feeling like, I know what I was saying it feels foreign, like a literal location, but this is like visual cues that we've never seen before in the Star Wars universe because yeah. it's really in depth in the cities. You really feel like you're in the slums of like the cities. Like there's just all these bright advertisements and huge skyscrapers, but then there's all these speeders and like, the, um, you know, Anakin falling through the sky and there's like all these, I, I don't know, just from a visual standpoint and an action uh, set piece, I mean, even if it is all digital, like it's it's very impressive. Well, again, on the documentary, which again, I recommend watching, um, George Lucas says that they can only attempt a scene like this because they were shooting digitally. Mm -hmm. It is not possible to film something like this with film. Or at the time, it was not possible to film something like this with film because it's literally going through a city that doesn't exist. It's similar to what how I felt about the pod racing from, from that we talked about last week because it's something that, from a visual standpoint, we've never seen in Star Wars before. And we get a couple sequence, sequences like that in this movie. Uh, the Jedi begin to question Zam, but before any information is revealed, Jango Fett, Tumera Morrison, kills her. Oh, man. If only that man knew how uh, how heavily involved he would be in this franchise. I think that he is thrilled to be as heavily involved because this is a good paycheck for the next 10, 15 years. I was just going to say, um, and we'll get more, cover more of him later, I guess, but it's... Um, yeah, I don't uh, want to spoil It's amazing anything, that they take he... such a simple character. But... Yeah. So, go on. <laughs> Um, the Jedi Council tasks Obi-Wan with locating the bounty hunter who is trying to kill Padme, while Anakin is tasked with guarding Padme on, the, on Naboo. Before Which, leaving Coruscant... Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. I just want to take a note here. 
this is the stupidest plan ever. Uh, where's the best place to hide Padme? How about her home world where no <laughs> one knows who she is? That's the, I, like the worst place to hide her. Of all the planets we can go to, let's put her on our home planet. Let's put her on the planet where she is a celebrity slash like a hero. Because let's not forget, she led to the liberation of Naboo. Everyone knows who she is. And She's you're putting her in hiding on the planet that she is a like a hero to? That just makes no Literally sense. Literally the former queen. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um. Before leaving Coruscant, Padme gives her senatorial powers over to Jar Jar. Once again, I'm at best. Bad call. Um, Bad call. Bold move. Bold move. Um, as Padme packs, Anakin unpacks his emotions, <laughs> to say the least. Um, first praising his master, then lambasting that Obi-Wan is holding him back. It ends with Anakin staring at Padme intensely. She tells him to stop, which he does not. No means no. Bad Anakin. That's a bad Anakin. <laughs> bad, bad boy. Um, Anakin, Padme, and R2 uh, load onto a refugee ship and make their way to Tatooine. Yeah, at least they take a refugee ship. Like, Come on, this my is guy. where we're cutting the funding Come here. Come on, my guy. Uh, Obi-Wan begins his inquiries by visiting his old friend Dexter Jetster, uh, played by Ronald Falk. Great guy. Um, Great guy. It's, it's really... Uh, yeah, I just really love something. the fact that he knows um, the, this like, uh, diner owner on Coruscant. Like, what? This is the most random thing ever. I'm like good it, friends with the, it, uh, with a diner owner who seems to know everything about weaponry. What? The most random guy ever. It's kind. I I, I lo I'd love to see the uh, um like the the writers' room and George is pitching this and he's like, all right, well we're slowing down the story to explore, you know, build anticipation. It's like like, but Obi Wan's gonna check into a diner. It's like, don't ask questions. He's just, he's, he's been to this diner before, you know, we got to expand the galaxy. This is what's going to happen. He's going to go to this diner. He's going to meet this old friend. <laughs> yeah. Classic. The Basilisk tells Obi-Wan that the poisonous dart is from Kamino, home of the cloners. The friendliness of this planet depends on how good, quote unquote, your manners are. How big your pocketbook is. <laughs> and... <laughs> that's a class i mean i fucking love that how big your pocketbook is it's <laughs> really does something. the money sign with his it hands does, yeah 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 it's outrageous um obi-wan searches for camino in the jedi temple's archives but cannot find it the librarian uh jacosta new jacosta new that's what i meant uh even pushes back saying that if it is not in the archive quote unquote then it doesn't exist we'll get into her a little later all right cool Yoda in the middle of teaching younglings is interrupted by Obi-Wan. Those poor younglings. Um, well, not those younglings. The younglings in the next No, those ones really probably are dead, ones, so. <laughs> 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 they, they were Padawans, but the, most of them were killed. I think oh, that... I, I, um, I, I don't remember if this is confirmed or not, but I think that one of those uh, younglings was uh, Caleb Doom, a.k.a. Uh, Kane and Jarrus, who is in Rebels, but I could be wrong on that. That's fan fiction. That's fake news. Actually, that's probably real. I don't know. Fans I don't know. I know that they tried to like retcon it that like maybe Ahsoka Tano was in there, but it that's not been confirmed either. Go on. Nothing can be confirmed nor denied. He pulls up the map and points to where Kamino should be. A youngling suggests that the planet has been erased. Yoda is impressed with the answer, but will meditate on who could have erased the information. Yeah, you go meditate on that, Yoda. 
Tell me when you get a fucking good answer. I'll wait. Oh, we'll wait. <laughs> wait. Uh, um, Anakin and Padme, Padme land on Naboo and meet with the new queen. Padme warn, warns war may be coming. Uh, once again, Padme takes Anakin down a, a, down a peg, telling the, the room he is a Padawan learner and she takes charge of her own hideaway. They go to the mountains and discuss their childhoods. Padme has fond memories of going to the beach. Anakin pushes back, saying he hates sand. It's coarse and it gets everywhere, unlike here where everything is smooth. Very creepy. He's feeling her while he's talking about how smooth shit is. I think he's picturing her veg, but I could be wrong. I could, you might be wrong. Very I, smooth, I can't just tell. like a Nabooian Brazilian wax. Like, well, they, uh, well, they kiss and then Padme pulls away, so... Later, an Anakin Padme frolic with oak oak. <laughs> it really is uh, just to keep in, in tune with our show here. That's really Literally accurate. Oak in that one. Really accurate. Later, Anakin and Padme frolic with oak and discuss politics. It's quite the scene. Uh, Anakin's uh, proclivity for uh, to totalitarianism. It's a great word. Pierces through at dinner. Anakin uses the force to cut Padme's pair as he sexual. reminisces about his adventures that ended in aggressive negotiations. There's so much sexual tension going on. I know we talked about that really. with, with the outfit. <laughs> not real. I mean, it's they're 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 it's it's strange. It's like what's funny is that Hayden Christensen and Natalie Portman ended up dating offset for a little bit after filming this movie so it's like you would think they'd have a little bit more sexual tension but you have that then then he, george gets in the way and he's like no no cut the pair yeah cut the pair cut, cut, cut the pair cut the pair <laughs> they adjourn by the fire where Kid admits he is haunted by the kiss that quote-unquote the kiss that padme should not have given him padme pushes back saying that they can never be together even if they do have feelings for one another the night gets worse for Anakin as he again dreams of his mother's suffering. Oh man, nothing like a day of hard-ons followed by a night of, you know, you're dreaming your mother's being killed. But <laughs> I guess and, uh, Freud would have a lot to say about that. A lot to say there. In the morning, he tells Padme he must go to Tatooine. She agrees to join him. Meanwhile, uh, Something I just want to make a note of yes. that I noticed this time around. I feel like it's interesting that, like, I just picked up on this dichotomy. Um we learned about Anakin's upbringing in The Phantom Menace and how it affected the rest of his life through this movie and further movies. But in this movie, we are shown Padme's life and we talk about her childhood for the first time. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing both these characters' lives in their childhood and how they got to be where they are. Yeah. And it's just interesting that different paths that were taken and how Padme could I think it's a statement George is trying to make that Padme turned out so good because she had it so good mm -hmm. she can help people who are more downtrodden than her through her ability to speak and that's based on her life experience where Anakin who grew up in poverty is like no sometimes you gotta have like aggressive nego negotiations he's, he's better, yeah you gotta I think it's yeah go on no, it's it's good. Um, it's a good um, range because even though this is ultimately Anakin's story, it's about his, his progression. You 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 got to flesh out the other characters, especially where there's romance between him and Batman at all. So I think that to show how different their backgrounds are and what makes them click, 
um, despite if anyone buys into the romance or not, it's a, it's an important, I think it's important to lay the groundwork for who these people are, where they came from. And I think you bring up a good point that they both have different perspectives of politics and of the world because of how they were brought up. And that plays out even more so in the next movie, of course. Um, but this one we get to see uh, in very clear terms, you know, they go to Naboo and then from Naboo, reminiscing about Padme's past, they go back to Tatooine to talk about Anakin's past. Mm -hmm. So within a matter of, you know, one movie, you're seeing how the past dictated who they are. Uh, so she agrees to join him in Tatooine. Meanwhile, Obi-Wan finds and lands uh, on Kamino. Uh, Wee, uh, played by Rena Owens, yep. uh, uh, a Kaminoan, uh, greets the Jedi Master saying that he is expected. After all this time, we <laughs> thought you weren't coming. I love that, this whole scene. Um, Obi-Wan is, Obi is confused, but plays along. Prime Minister uh, Lama Su, played by uh, Anthony Phelan, uh, tells Obi-Wan that 200,000 clone troops are ready with a million more on the way. Obi-Wan inquires who placed the order and for what purpose. Uh, Lama Su says that the Jedi Master uh, Sifo-Dyas yeah. played uh, placed the order 10 years ago for the Republic. Obi-Wan is given a tour of the facility and the army. The original host is bounty hunter named Jango Fett. He lives on the planet with an un with unaltered clone Boba, played by Daniel Logan. Obi-Wan, ordered by the council to take the bounty hunter, con confronts Jango. The Mandalorian rebuffs Obi-Wan on the planet, and the chase moves to space. Jango, try, uh, trying to lose... The Jedi enters an asteroid field and drops seismic charges. Which I gotta hides. say, yeah, awesome sound effect. That is like the coolest sound effect in possibly the entire prequel series. Well, I was gonna say this whole sequence is probably one of my favorite moments of this whole movie. Um, I, I, we can harp on it later, but it's really just the, the behind the whole mystery of Camino, like the whole, like everything that's like very eerie about the way the Caminoans look, like their visual appearance, down to like the cryptic dialogue about like, we were expecting you and order was placed 10 years ago. And like we the will get music. to that in the canon corner. I yeah, promise. it's very good. Um, and then the fight in the rain is very, I mean, I just love everything about it and that it goes directly into space. The sound effect, like you said, is great. We, I, I don't think we ever hear something like that again in the, in the films, in the cat, in the, the main, yeah, not, films. not in the films, but it's really just, it's very unique. It's just to show again, how much of a, how much of a different leap these movies take just everything about the tiny things, even down to the sound design stands out for being different from the original trilogy, which is just more icing on the cake for how, you know, uh, uh, you know, how much of a contrast that is. Yeah. Um, but Obi-Wan hides in the asteroids, uh, letting Django land on Geonosis. On Tatooine, Anakin begins the search for his mother by questioning his old owner, Watto, Andy Saccombe. Watto, Annie? Little Annie! <laughs> it is you! Watto says that he sold Shmi to a moisture farmer outside of Mos Eisley's. On the farm, C-3PO, Anthony Daniels, is elated to see his maker. Anakin is introduced to his stepbrother, Owen Lars, Joel Edgerton. Who's this which, guy? Crazy. <laughs> in this fucking movie. I hope he comes back for uh, That'd be the cool. Kenobi series. Yeah. Future sister-in-law, Baru, Bonnie Pisces, I don't know, and stepfather, Cleeg Lars, Jack Thompson. Lars tells Anakin that Shmi was taken by Tusken Raiders. I'm not using sand people. That's just like offensive. <laughs> he and 30 men attempted to save her, but only four men survived and he lost his leg. 
Anakin leaves Padme, loads on a speeder, and begins his own search. Now, I just want to note, because this is like quasi-canon, it, we don't know this for a fact, but in the Attack of the Clones novelization, which is not technically canon, but is based off of the original script for Attack of the Clones, there is an allusion to the fact that maybe Palpatine arranged for the Tusken Raiders to take Shmi Skywalker. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a similar leap as we talked about Phantom Menace in terms of um, the possibility that they use the Force to manipulate um, Shmi's pregnancy. Yeah, it's very clear from the from the end of Phantom Menace, and as we will note in Revenge of the Sith, and as uh, they talk about in Clone Wars, long has Sidious been grooming Anakin to be his apprentice for a very long time. He had been grooming him and he knew that taking Shmi would push him over the edge. No, it's definitely, it gives a lot of depth to this whole dynamic. Shmi, Pernella August, is badly beaten and tied to a rack. Anakin cuts her down. Though dying, she cannot believe she's seeing her son. Dying, she tries telling her son that she loves him. Consumed with rage, Anakin begins slaughtering the Tuscans. His ire causes a shift in the force so large that Mace and Yoda on Coruscant feel it. Mace asks Yoda what is happening. Yoda responds, Pain, suffering, death, I feel. Something terrible has happened. Young Skywalker is in pain. Terrible pain. On Geonosis, Obi-Wan continues his investigation. He finds Count Dooku, Christopher Lee, negotiating a mass secession from the Republic with the Trade Federation, Techno Union, and Banking Clans. They are uh, also building an army of droids to prepare for war. Obi-Wan attempts to contact the Jedi Temple, but is too far away. He instead sends a signal to Anakin on Tatooine. Anakin returns to the Lars family farm with Shmi's body. Unable to deal with his grief, he tinkers with, with the mechanics. Padme tries to calm him down, but he confesses that he slaughtered the, the raiders, not just the men, but the women and the children too. And let me tell you, Padme couldn't find anything sexier than a man who slaughters little children. He loves it. Loves it. <clears throat> Vader, Vader's theme plays in behind him. At the funeral, Anakin kneels over his mother's grave, vowing never to let something like this happen again, and the seeds are planted. R2 interrupts with Obi-Wan's transmission. Per Obi-Wan's instructions, Anakin forwarded the message to Coruscant, the Council and Loyalist Party, which in, watch in Palpatine's office. Obi-Wan is cut off by being surrounded by Droidica. The politicking begins. Bail Organa, Jimmy Smits, warns that the Senate will never approve a clone army, which is the vote that Padme wanted to be on Curzon for. Right. We kind of like brush that over, but it's about commissioning an army for the Republic. It's the Padme, most important political strategy that they have throughout. Something that gets talked about more in the Clone Wars is Padme is not entirely for this war. Right. She is part of the Loyalist Party, which 
consists of Bail Organa, Mon Mothma, her, right. and a couple of other big rebel leaders, mm -hmm. uh, big rebel future rebellion leaders who are against this war. They want to negotiate peace before war breaks out. Yeah. But obviously, no, it's, it's laying all the groundwork. Yeah. But obviously, that does not happen. Masa Mita, David Bauer, floats the idea of the Senate giving Palpatine emergency powers. Jar Jar falls for the trap. Palpatine accepts these powers, saying, It is with great reluctance that I have agreed to this calling. I love democracy. I love the Republic. The power you give me, I will lay down when this crisis has awakened. He's so full of bullshit, and he knows it's... it, and he's hamming up the scene, and it's so good. I think we talked about him last week, but he's one of the few actors out of the entire prequel trilogy. Well, out of well, well, regular original trilogy gets a little tricky with the acting, but um, he just he completely sells the role every single moment he's on screen. He's just he's doing exactly what he needs to do, and he's doing it flawlessly. <laughs> I think he knows exactly the tone to go for because he did it in the original trilogy, and he's mm -hmm. just taking what he knows and is applying it to this. It's, yeah, he's so good. Palpatine's first act is approving the clone army. Yoda will go to Kamino. Mace will take Jedi forces to Geonosis. Floating in a prison cell, Count Dooku talks with Obi-Wan. Dooku attempts to manipulate Obi-Wan by invoking Qui-Gon, Dooku's old apprentice. This does not work, and Dooku tries a new tactic, telling him the truth. What if I told you that the Republic was now under the control of the Dark Lord of the Sith? No, that's not possible. The Jedi would be aware of it. The dark side of the Force has clouded their vision, my friend. Hundreds of senators are now under the influence of a Sith Lord called Darth Sidious. You know, landing out pretty out in the open here. Something that I big. will say that um, you learn, particularly in the Clone Wars, is that the Jedi really screwed the pooch on this one <laughs> they had a lot of the jigsaw puzzle pieces and just could not place them together in time and i think that's yeah no keep going no i'm just gonna say and yes they had a war going on that's part of the reason why and as we'll mention later it's they couldn't truly trust dooku either he's a now a sith an open sith but it's like you know the you know, if you picked the right, if you like scratched the right thing here, you could have unraveled everything. I think that's part of though what makes the story of the Jedi, at least in this era, uh, fascinating because it eventually leads to their own demise. Their own, it's their own under misunderstanding of what is happening behind the scenes that causes them to eventually fall. And I think that's what I love. Sorry to cut you off. No, but so that's what I love. And I'm jumping here to the last Jedi, Luke says to Rey very bluntly, the Jedi were fallible and they were wrong, which is what led to their own destruction. Right. He says it to Rey, like that's why the Jedi were wrong. They, their hubris got so far in the way. They thought that they were the protectors of the light, but in reality, just because there are no Jedi doesn't mean there's no light. Right, and it's it's very poignant. It's almost like someone just took that idea and was like, okay, here's this idea of these 
the good guys on paper, these protectors, like you're saying, of, of the light, these forces of good. And it's like you watch them unravel themselves to the point where they're outnumbered and they're, they're all wiped out. And so it's like the idea that just because the good guys are gone doesn't mean that being good is gone. Uh, but this is all the beginning of that. This is all them like seeing the plan, like you're saying, they could have had the opportunities to rectify this and to like you know uh whatever thwart evil or however you want to look at it but the fact that they don't i think is what makes their story so fascinating yeah and of course we'll we'll touch more on that when next week with uh, we'll definitely sith. talk about it a lot more in revenge of the sith um dooku asks obi-wan to join him to defeat sidious obi-wan does not believe it and rejects dooku Pad, Pad, padme forces anakin to go to geonosis Upon landing, they are chased by the Geonosian bugs through the droid factory. Um, that whole sequence, kind of like the speeder sequence you were talking about, um, the chase through Coruscant, it's it's long and it you know, and it's uh, uh, but it's a really cool sequence. The whole thing with the factory. I find it that interesting, to be honest. I, really I think, don't. But I think uh... from a visual cue, everything with like it's just again like the like the speeder chase it, or, or in the beginning of the movie. It's just it's a very visually contrasting um thing it feels a little like a video game in a sense like they're trapped you see that they're problem to... with it it's too much just like stop and go and yes they're adding and the adding c3po in for humor just didn't work it for doesn't me. no it's very child it's very child childish in the way that c3po and r2d2 can be but it's also very like i, I don't know it's different and it definitely it, you know what it is it's par- probably the most phantom menace like moment like sequence in the sense that it's like trying to juggle the the kid-friendly humor with the adventure and it's like i don't know but um i yeah. thought from a visual standpoint everything about it was was cool but right. um yeah. they yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, they are brought to a coliseum where they await to be the main attraction while waiting padme confesses that she quote-unquote truly deeply loves anakin and that's when i vomited <laughs> <laughs> already tied to a pole is obi-wan Three beasts are brought out to attack the prisoners. They manage to hold their own. Mace Windu sneaks up on Dooku and ignites his lightsaber over Jango's neck. This party's over. Jedi all around the stadium ignite their lightsabers. Legions of droids open fire. The Battle of Geonosis begins. Mace faces off with Jango, leading to the bounty hunter's decapitation. Heavy stuff. Real heavy stuff. Real. It goes right for the head. That's brutal. You should. Really... You know what? He was ahead of his time if only thor had learned his lesson uh, peter parker should have showed time. thor these it's really, movies <laughs> really not a way to get ahead in line <laughs> oh. uh the jedi are being overrun dooku halts the assault and offers a, cl- a clemency mace says that the jedi will not be bargaining chips just before uh, droids continue onslaught from above uh the attack of the clones commences Yoda lands his reinforcements in the Col- Coliseum, sa- uh, saving the remaining Jedi. The Separatists are aghast, questioning how the Jedi could get an army so quickly. Dooku orders the Separatists to flee the planet. Poggle the Lesser, uh, Martin Sarkis, <laughs> hands Dooku the plans for the Death Star to bring to Sidious. There is so much going on in this. We'll, we'll, there is. I, I, I Poggle we'll the Lesser. Return. We'll talk about Poggle a little bit more in the Rogue One pod because he survives... Um through uh he survives longer than most i believe you yeah anakin and obi-wan chase dooku to a hangar bay uh obi-wan explores his apprentice to attack simultaneously but anakin runs forward first he is shot with force lightning and thrown to the side 
Obi-Wan force, uh, faces Dooku alone. Dooku should talk to Obi-Wan and best him. Surely before, you could do better. <laughs> <laughs> before the final blow comes down, Anakin uh, comes down. Anakin regains his strength and fights Dooku alone. The duel is ended with Anakin's arm cut off. Just then, Yoda arrives. The old master and apprentice face each other with their force skills, but ultimately, lightsabers are drawn. Dooku distracts Yoda by bringing down a beam on Obi-Wan and Anakin. Yoda saves the Jedi, but Dooku gets away. Uh, like yeah. uh, Captain America, he does not trade lives. <laughs> In a warehouse on the outskirts of Coruscant, Dooku meets his master. Sidious is pleased. The war has begun. Everything is going according to plan. At the Jedi Temple, Obi-Wan is invited into Mace Windu and Yoda's inner circle. They discuss Sidious. Yoda is skeptical, saying that Dooku has joined the dark side and cannot be trusted. Obi-Wan sighs a bit of relief. I have to admit that without the clones, it would not have been a victory. Victory? Victory, you say? Master Obi-Wan, not victory. The shroud of the dark side has fallen. Begun. The Clone War has. Palpatine and a few senators overlook the clone army as they load onto the Republic attack cruisers. Bail looks horrified. Nab on Naboo, Anakin and Padme secretly get married. The end. So, as we mentioned last week, instead of jumping right into the awards, we're going to do something called the Canon Corner. And this week, we got a lot of fun, juicy stuff to get into because the plot thickens heavily with this one. So first, let's talk about uh, Count Dooku here. <laughs> Count Dookie. Uh, kind of an interesting name. Count Dookie. I don't have the origins for this name, but I imagine it had to do with Christopher Lee playing Count Dracula. <laughs> I imagine. Uh, yes. Originally, Count Dooku was a Jedi. Clearly, he was the Padawan to, Obi uh, to Yoda, and he was the master to Qui-Gon Jinn. So technically... Uh, Obi-Wan is his grandchild, so, you know, apprentice. <laughs> um, he was the second or third best swordsman in the Order after Yoda and Mace Windu. Uh, he left the Order because of his frustration with the politics, and he became one of the Lost Twenty. The Lost Twenty are Jedi who left the Order because of various reasons. And each of the last of the Lost 20 get a bust of their head within the archives of, in the Jedi temples. If you notice, before Jocasta Nu talks to Obi-Wan, he's looking at a bust of Count Dooku. Um, what is the timeline of everything you're talking about? Like, is this that's, supposed to be- That's what I'm about to get into. I was gonna say. Another reason that he left the order and uh, Sidious was able to sway him to the dark side was because of his apprentice Qui-Gon's death. Uh, the death of Qui-Gon disturbed him very much, especially because he felt it unnecessary. He didn't think Qui-Gon needed to die because the politics bogged down what was happening on Naboo so far that the Jedi couldn't reinforce uh, Qui-Gon and help 
the way that they could have in Naboo. What, uh, what is your source material for this? Is this in Clone Wars or is this in uh, like in, this is in, from a comic books? book? Okay, this is from a comic. Um, but it, okay, yeah. I mean, there's no real like timeline, uh, like there's no exact date as to when it happened, but. No, I'm wondering uh, for like for like for like just general audiences' sake. Like, is it like it, this is you're talking this is post Phantom Menace, but this post is like Phantom Menace. What now? Here's the tricky thing. It looks like Qui Gon was killed and Dooku left the Order. At which point he went back to his home planet of Sereno and reclaimed his title as Count. His first name is not Count. You know, sure. That is his title. He is from nobility of that planet. This is again quasi-canon, but rumor is he killed his brother and siblings to reclaim his title of Count. Sure. Um, but Palpatine being the political mind that he was, saw an opportunity in a disgruntled Jedi who also comes from nobility. And he can sense that, hey, maybe this guy might be a good find for me he became the head of the separatist movement and was proclaimed Darth Tyrannus. As to the creation of the clone army, as uh, they mentioned on Camino, it was created by Jedi Master sifo Dyas. Now, before I get into him, I just wanna say that sifo Dyas was actually a typo. The original script was supposed to list a uh, sido Dyas, which was a riff on Sidious. That was like his code name for the creation of the clone army, but because of a typo, it listed it as Sifo Dyas. So they came up with this character based on a typo. Yeah, George Lucas wow. loved the typo so much that he thought, and he thought it added more depth to the underlying plot that he kept it. Wait, so was, so originally you're saying it was supposed to be Sidious? Originally, it was supposed to be Sidious, but the plot has since changed. Obviously, when Sifo Dyas became the character. I really like that. That's cool. What his, he had a proclivity of sensing the future and he sensed a coming civil war with the Republic and a need for a, an army. He informed the Jedi council of this and requested that they adhere to creating an army and they rejected him. They said, no, because again, as Mace Windu said, we're peacekeepers, not, uh, not warmongers. Mm -hmm. um, so he was rejected, but sifo didn't listen. <laughs> he, he, he didn't listen. He went to Kamino anyway and placed the order. Again, this is where the timeline gets a little murky. There's no like official timeline, but uh, he lied to the, Kamino, the Kaminoans saying that he had the approval of the Senate and the council to do it. And one of the only Jedi that he told about this plot was Count Dooku, which is how he knew about this uh, coming war, which is again, another reason why he left the order. And because Dooku knew, Sidious knew. Mm -hmm. And Sidious is not one to just waste an opportunity like this. He saw this as a possibility to take down the Jedi um, sifo was sent on a mission to Fallujah, at which point Count Dooku ordered his assassination through the Pike Syndicate. The Pikes uh, shot down his, uh, his ship 
and took his body, giving it to Count Dooku as, as um, proof that they shot him down. But the Pikes kept collateral. They kept Siphodius's translator, which they held in a prison cell for 10 plus years. Now, what's your, what's your source material for this? Is this still the comic or is this- No, this Clone is Clone Wars. Wars. Okay. Once Siphodius died, Ta- uh, Tyrannus took over the formation of the clone army from Siphodius, talking to the Keminoans. He was their point of contact. And that is how um, Jar Jar, uh, not Jar, sorry, that is how Django came into being. As, uh, as Django mentioned in the movie, he was hired by a Tyrannus to be the host of the clone army. And as we will find out in the Clone Wars, Tyrannus kept tabs on the Keminoans and even ordered the production of an inhibitor chip that went into each clone's mind, which would set off when the Order 66 was given. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this know. is um, so. But this is but this is ten years in the making. You're talking. This is this. a ten-year plan in the making. Sidious and Tyrannus worked together for ten to twelve years, which is again why the timeline is murky. We don't know whether Sidious really courted Dooku while he was still a Jedi or not. He probably would have had to have been because. Dooku erased Kamino from the archives. Sure. Um, but again, the timeline is very murky here. But that's all I got on that. That's the, how the clone army was created. It, Sifo-Dyas fell into a trap of, it's like, it's one of those situations where he saw the future, but was also creating the future by doing what he did. Mm-hmm. He created the army, but by creating the army, he created the war and the downfall right. of the Jedi. But Sifo-Dyas himself wasn't a Jedi. You're saying he's more of a... Sifo-Dyas uh, was a Jedi. He was a Jedi master. But he sensed the future and sensed a coming civil war. But by sensing the civil war, he mm-hmm. ultimately kind of created the civil war. You see what I'm saying? Right. right. No, of course. Yeah, because he wanted to deflect whatever fu- grim future he saw. But by... It's a um, it's a paradox. It's a um, it's like a Back to the Future, par- not Back to the Future. It's like a timeline uh, paradox. It's yeah, like exactly. you know he's he's creating something to prevent something bad, but in creating that something, it becomes the, bad the, ver- the very exactly. bad he's he's predicting. Yeah. So that's good. The other character I wanted to talk about was Jar Jar Binks. Um, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, it's you could kind of see him as a an unwitting villain of this movie. Again, he's an idiot, so he didn't understand really it's not what his he fault. was doing. Yeah, exactly. But he did give Palpatine executive power that he used to ultimately become the Emperor. And the people uh, of the galaxy, particularly of Naboo, held him responsible. <laughs> right. So I mean, it, after... he falls in line with the Jedi in terms of like just not being able to see the mistakes, not being able to see what was really going on. And so he just did what he thought was the most logical choice. Yeah, exactly he fell into the trap that Palpatine was laying. Right. Uh, again, I'm not wholeheartedly blaming him, but the people of the galaxy blamed him. Sure. So after, there, there's a book called Aftermath, Empire's End. After the Empire has fallen, we find Jar Jar as almost like a chaplain-esque 
tramp character. He lives in Thebes, the capital of Naboo, where he is a clown uh, in the city center, like by a fountain, like just trying to entertain people from any amount of cash that he could find. It's actually like a pathetic figure. He's a vagabond and the adults loathe him and the children love him. And ultimately he takes in a little orphan boy who is like has a deformity. So it's almost like a Charlie Chaplin movie. Wow. Yeah. So he does not have, he has like a weird kind of happy ending, but not really. Sure. And that's all I really got for the canon corner for this one. Honestly, cool. more important than anything was talking about the formation of the clone army. No, of course, you know, it's, it's cool that they only sprinkle a little bit of um, um, explanation in the, in the movie, but there's obviously a lot more going on behind the scenes that they don't explain. So it's always, it's always cool to get clear. The Mechanations had been operating against the Jedi for a very long time and through their arrogance, they were just not willing to see it. I, I guess I'll just, because I mentioned it already, the main point was that this was a way for Palpatine to, he's following Napoleon's kind of motto, divide and conquer. If you divide the galaxy, they can fight each other. The Jedi will be so busy fighting the war that they will not be able to sense my growing strength. They'll just think that the dark side is from, the growing strength of the darkness is from the war itself. So they're clouded. And I think there's even a moment in this movie where Mace Windu wants to alert the Senate saying that we are clouded, our minds are clouded and we're not seeing it. And Yoda tells him, we cannot tell the Senate because if the Sith catch on to it, we're in deep trouble. So it's, it, it's you know, a perpetuating thing. But the clone army had been in development for a long period of time without the Jedi knowing, but more sure. important... In each jet, in each clone trooper, there was an inhibitor chip placed that obviously comes into play later. Which comes into play later because the troopers and the Jedi formed bonds throughout the war. Sidious foresaw that. He's not an idiot. He knew that battle scars lie deeper. So when giving Order 66, the inhibitor chip would go off, thereby setting the clone's mind and they would automatically have to follow the order. A good soldier follows orders is the motto that they say when the inhibitor chip goes off and they well, and I have know, to attack their Jedi. And I do know that part of that com complexity comes into the Clone Wars in terms of like the character development because it's like the whole idea of them acting against their own inhibitions. Like it's the whole, I, yeah. I, I, I don't, I, again, I haven't seen it, but like I, I do know that part of what people love about Clone Wars is they give depth to these otherwise robotic characters because they give them like a kind of a conscience where it's like, okay, well, they have to, they're, they literally have no choice but to act on these orders because of the chip, but ultimately it goes into a deeper complexity of like making these decisions to kill. And then like, well, I don't the know. The complexity of the show is they're human, but they're also manufactured. Right. So, which is so, which is a very cool concept. Yeah. And it it's harder when you literally have a chip in your mind giving you orders. So how different are you from a droid in reality? Yeah. No, it's cool. There's a lot. Of, there could be. There's a lot of potential for depth there, which obviously the, the Clone, Wars Clone Wars does. takes on, which is yeah. why I highly recommend watching the Clone yeah. Wars. Yeah. 
Good show. Classic. We'll talk classic, about classic. it later after well, we're done uh, talking about the movies. Yeah, so we'll dive into, into the uh, awards. Awards here. Josh, remind the good people, what are the awards? For the folks at home, we've uh, most iconic moment, the clunkiest dialogue, aka the most uh, George Lucas dialogue. Um, the, the John Williams Award, uh, anything devoted to the best piece of music, uh, best creature or droid design, uh, the standout character, and of course, the best use of the force. So I can start with iconic moment. For this one, it's not, in hindsight, it's not really my favorite moment, but just some background, I vividly remember watching this movie in theaters. This was the first Star Wars movie that I saw in theaters. And the iconic moment is when Yoda takes out his lightsaber to fight. I was nine years old when I saw this movie in theaters and I vividly remember this moment. Nine-year-old Steven had no idea what was going on, but he jizzed his pants. And to me, that's the most iconic moment. Again, in hindsight, watching Yoda fight with a lightsaber, maybe not the best thing in the world, but I can't deny that for me, it's iconic. Just because um, of the theater experience. I was just going to say, I can remember seeing this in theaters and I can actually remember, like, I mean, it's hard to remember that far back, but it's also like, I can actually remember the theater erupting in applause when that moment happened. Like, I can just remember, like, you can hear, like, the the gasping and you can hear the excitement. And it's one of those things about the before times of the theatrical experience. So it's like, that is, of course, an iconic moment itself because it's something that, I don't know. It's just like I, whoever thought we'd get there and whoever thought we'd see this. And it's kind of like, I don't know. It is such a, it literally is a, the definition of the word iconic. Yeah. Um, it was, it was my runner up. Uh, another, the other runner up I had was the Jedi fight on um, Geonosis. Geonosis because it's the first and one of the only times in the movies that you see the Jedi truly in action. It's an amazing scene. And I remember everything about it and the colors of the lightsabers when they're all running. It's just, everything mm -hmm. is about it. It's amazing. Ultimately I went with an easy answer, but I feel like it's the more, the reason I say iconic is because it's a real turning point was uh, Anakin slaughtering the Tusken Raiders. I think that it's like, I know Hayden Christensen's acting gets a bum rap for like when he's explaining his anger and how he slaughtered them like animals and whatnot. But I think that the, it, the whole thing about Shmi dying and like, you know, it's a very convincing moment. She's a, you know, uh, gives it her all kind of. And it's just like, you hear the music changing. You hear, you know, yeah, you Jones hear music. Vader's theme. And then um, you just see the lightsaber and they show the Tusken Raiders and they show the children and they all kind of drop what they're doing. And they look at him and you just see him like it's the first time that he loses his shit and he becomes he gives into the anger. And so I think it's iconic because it's the literal turning point for his character. Which is why it's interesting to me that Palpatine may have engineered that as well. But to your bigger point, it's also a very human moment. Of course. You know, no person can watch that and not at least understand where Anakin is coming from a little bit. You know, if you see your mother being tortured and then dying in your arms, you're going to want revenge on the people that did it. I love it. I love that he doesn't hold back. And I just, it's such a short moment, but it's that, it's that like, he just, you just see his it's because it's the first time you see him use his lightsaber in such an aggressive and unabashedly unpredictable way because like the whole thing of the jedis they're like they're almost like buddhists like they're just the old keepers of the peace like they keep saying so see him in this like these this one moment where he's just kind of like unleashing and like you know um and it, you know it cuts to you know whatever and yoda's 
uh, you know, so deeply troubled because he can feel it. I mean, everything about that moment, um, even the more I rewatch it, the more it stands out to me as like, it's the most significant moment for the story. So to me, that was So I know for me, this was the hardest award because there was a lot of answers to go with. So what is your clunkiest dialogue? I can't just lump all of Hayden Christensen's dialogue into, you know, one answer. I could, it would be, I, I mean- the sand speech, of course, is like the probably the one that stands out the most. The one I actually wrote down, though, was the one when he's talking about uh, he's talking with Padme after they kissed. And he says, the thought of not being with you, I can't yep, breathe. That's, that's ha- literally the one I have written down. Haunted, I wrote down the whole monologue. Haunted by the kiss that you should never should have given me. Yeah, um, from it, the moment I met you all those years ago. A day has gone by when I haven't thought of you. Now that I'm with you again, I'm in agony. The closer I get to you, the worse it gets. The thought of not being with you. I can't breathe. I'm haunted by the kiss that you should never have given me. My heart is beating, hoping that that kiss will not become a scar. You are in my very soul, tormenting me. It's Granted, really, you know, Natalie Portman shows up to my room next to a fire in a bustier. Maybe I'll give the same speech. Right. I, I had mentioned that it's, uh, I mentioned Shakespeare before, and this is like the moment I feel like he's trying to go for like the Shakespearean dialogue, a very Hamlet kind of speech of like, my heart aches, whatever, you know, I can't breathe. I'm haunted by the kiss. Like, it's like, he's, I see what they're going for, but the way it plays out, it's just the, Gross. <laughs> it, it's just the, di- it just doesn't work. This, I think this, the sand being coarse dialogue is, has been r- like ridiculed so much that it doesn't really even bother me as much. Cause it's, it's just, almost a joke at this point, that one. R- Right, so it's and like they I play it off as a joke, not, right. not in so the it, movie, but in the Lucasfilm world. I know that they make jokes about it. It's not even worth for me to harp on. I just feel like the the internet and the world has too much to say about it already. So the only other dialogue that I have is Natalie Portman before they go out into the Coliseum, and she turns to Anakin and says, "I truly, deeply love you." And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like. Oh, God, kill me on. right now please come on come on oh, man uh but john how about williams award? the john williams award i gotta say i've been listening to the soundtracks after watching the movie just for this award this one this uh, soundtrack actually had a lot of good songs it's like an underrated um i soundtrack. agree uh, i could have gone with across the stars which is like the iconic love theme from this movie because that one is probably like the biggest song that came out of it uh the zam chase was pretty good mm-hmm. but i gotta go with my heart here and i'm gonna go with the confrontation with dooku oh Pati- that's good specifically the moment when dooku lands back on coruscant and he's talking to sidious and in the background you hear the sopranos it's the emperor's theme but just the soprano singing uh yeah it's It's like very so haunting and it reminds you like this was all just a plan and it is working like Sidious's plan is now in action he's Um, like going to become emperor John Williams has always been a master of guiding mood with his music like you know like how you're supposed to feel based on like his, his music and that's a musical cue that your example of how you know it's like something it's something bad and it's something building and it's something big but it's also like a very subtle like 
it all that to say is like nothing happens in that scene up until they start speaking it's kind of but you know you can build the anticipation through this that piece of music alone yeah it's um, so good i, but, I uh, love it to your point john williams sets the tone with his music and honestly without the across the stars song the padme anakin relationship would fall completely flat the music well, is what really gives them the love it's funny that you say that because that's that's uh, that's my pick. It's the obvious choice. I mm-hmm. think that it's like again going going with going with our hearts here. I think it's the one, and the specifically it's the moment before the execution, um, despite whatever the, the the clunky dialogue beforehand. It's that moment that they are being ushered out to their execution, and that theme em- embellishes itself back in, and then they show the crowd of. Uh, in the Coliseum, and then the the theme kind of swoons back in, and like every single time that specific scene gets me, because it's like, that's like, I don't want to say it's John Williams at his best, but like, John Williams is like, it's, it's the, it's like you're saying, it's the, it's, it carries the relationship, it carries the moment, it carries all the weight, and that scene specifically is where it kind of turns for me, where I'm like, oh, this is, this is it, this is the moment for me, this is the, I just feel it like it's a it's a sore of emotions that I'm I don't feel when I'm listening to the characters. Speak. My emotions. <laughs> um, so, what's your best creature design? Um, this was a little tricky. Um, I could have gone with the gladiator animals. Uh, that I don't know the, if the creatures have names. I thought that they I'm sure they as, do. I don't. As, as far as design, it's cool to see creatures that are inspired by like um you know praying mantis or a rhino and whatnot or a tiger but like um the anime the cgi is not the best but i like the design regardless um the my answer is the 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 kaminoans kaminoans yeah kaminoans kaminoans um i i there's a note here that's mine as well oh okay well i was gonna say there's a note in imdb it says um the Kaminoans have an appearance more reminiscent of traditional extraterrestrials other than uh, most aliens of the Star Wars franchise. Lucas said this was an intentional homage to his friend Steven Spielberg and his work, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was cool because the creatures, and I'll let, because I'll let you, you know, take it from, from here, but it's basically, I like that they're, the way that they tower over and they're so foreign looking and so strange looking and so lanky and that everything about them is cool, but I'll let you say more. Well, Everything you just said, I love the design, the lankiness, the over the top, but it's also the eeriness of them. Everything is so sleet white, except for their black eyes. And the design is just, I I mean, it goes back to what George Lucas said. They're more extraterrestrial, which is something that captures you immediately. You're just like, wow, these guys are like really something different for this universe. The only other character that I could have gone with for creature design was Dexter, but uh, I went with, you know, cause Dexter was cool design, the mustache ingrained in his actual body, you know, it's cool, but the coming elements was like, that. that's where it is. Yeah. Um, so standout character or characters mm-hmm. uh, for me, uh, I, I'm going back and forth. Uh, for new character, I would say Django Fett is probably like the standout, but to me, the standout, and he's in this movie very little, is still Palpatine because he is crushing this movie. 
without even really being in it. Because he, he, he plays the he, sideline a lot more. But the thing is, his character is in the sideline, but his presence is throughout the entire movie. He is dictating this entire movie, and you feel it, and you. I, and the Jedi feel it, but they don't understand, and they're going along with his plan. Yeah, his uh, his hand is all over more so than any of the prequels because in both Phantom Menace, but more so Revenge of the Sith, is he's an active character. He's like he's a, the character is is around a lot. Whereas in this, even though he's barely in it, like you're saying, like everything that he does and all of his plans, it's like you see it through Dooku, you see it through the villains, you see it through the the way they talk about the plans and the clones, and it's like you know that something bad is happening but it feels like it's part of the plan and you feel it without seeing the character it's a it's i mean yeah, yeah it's a, it's a good force of evil like in the way that like sauron is in lord of the rings like it's a presence you don't see but you know it represents this evil anyway uh best use of the force uh, uh go for it my standout character though <laughs> oh sorry sorry i thought yours was palpatine go sorry sit no, if Palpatine was a runner-up, but I actually went with Dooku. I was going to say, I think in all of Star Wars lore, from what I've seen of the films, uh, it's the only time that you really get to see Dooku kind of uh, in action. I, he's barely, he's only in the opening of Revenge of the Sith, but I think that because of, uh, you know, Christopher Lee, he's just being himself, really. But I like that the character is a more literal force of, this, uh, of you know, for lack of a better word, a literal force of evil. He's just this, you know. Uh, it's, like I said, it's Christopher Lee playing himself, but I, I like yeah. his presence. The only reason I couldn't go with Dooku was because I feel like he was, Christopher Lee was literally just playing Saruman. That's what I'm saying. Again. It's, not the, it's not like his act, and Christopher Lee was a great actor, yeah, but it's like. obviously. It's just like he's literally playing the same character again within the same year. This came out 2002, so did uh, two The Two Towers. And it's the same character. It's the number two villain who takes on number one's responsibility because number one is not ready to come and reveal him himself. Yeah, I liked that it was um it was different for uh like I say he's like a, the, he's a fa- he's the face of him like you just described. Yeah, um, he's the face I, and the leader of the separatists. It was very it was very it was very different. I I appreciated it. But um you were saying uh, best use of the force. Yeah, but you um. Is me, yes. Yeah. Um, best use of the force. Um, I guess it's really, um, I guess it's during Yoda's fight is the, is the, is the real obvious answer I have. Uh, Dooku trying to just crush him and he's just like, more so than the lightsaber fight being exciting, of course, is, is Yoda just putting up his tiny little claws and just deflecting these rocks. I don't know. Well, to be more specific, uh, for me, the best use of the force is Yoda containing the lightning that is coming at him with oh, his hands. Oh, that's cool too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we see the lightning in Return of the Jedi. But for the first time, we're seeing that a Jedi has the ability to hone in the lightning. And Luke just didn't know that skill. You know, good job, Yoda, sending him to fight Sidious, who's known for his lightning. Um, But to me, that's the standout. And honestly, something you were kind of alluding to before the lightsaber duel, my least favorite line in this whole movie it's not the clunkiest dialogue but is my least favorite line is when dooku is saying that our skills cannot be uh decided by use of the force but by skills with a lightsaber i'm like you're defeating the purpose of like everything right now 
I like, disagree. I think it's a cool line, but it, it also goes against, I guess it goes against the characters, uh, who the characters are, really. Dooku is a swordsman, so it makes sense, I guess, for him, but the whole point of the movies, or at least part of the point for me, is that the Force is more important than a lightsaber. No, of course, but they needed to give Yoda a reason to... No, I get it. I get it. I, if, it's just like, you could have just whipped out your lightsaber and started. You didn't need to say, like, I disagree. the Force is useless. I just, I, well, the, it, what it shows this also useless back and forth with him doing the lightning and him catching it. It's kind of like there's a dialogue and like it shows that they're both powerful in a certain way. But I guess Yoda Yo is an old, a little old man or a little old creature who, like, I guess it's like, I, I guess it's almost like he thought he could break him by just physically fighting rather than using the force. I yeah, get it's reverse it's reverse logic for a Jedi, so I can get why. You know, but it's but. reverse logic for a Sith too, because Palpatine despised lightsabers. He hated them. He thought that they were coarse and, and they get everywhere. <laughs> yeah, he thought they were coarse <laughs> and they hated it and they got everywhere. But um, Palpatine thought that the weapon was that of a Jedi, and it was mm-hmm. beneath any Sith's real power to use a lightsaber when you have these inane, these abilities that you can call on that Jedi can't because sure. they're not willing to go there. Sure. But anyway, um, let's get into final discussion. In terms of final thoughts, I think that this movie for me goes very hand in hand with Phantom Menace in terms of its balance of what I find is flawed and what I dislike about the movie versus what I I, I, I like, I really love about the movie. Um, the difference here is that with, with Phantom Menace is I ultimately come to defend it as like an adventure romp, even if much of it feels insignificant and useless. Um, we talked about last week about how the actual plot and purpose of Phantom Menace has greater meaning down the road, as George Filoni put best. Dave, um, Dave to put them together, as, uh, as Dave Filoni put best, thank you, but... Um, ultimately it's an entertaining movie where this i feel like attack of the clones there's so much significance going on and so much grave importance and yet i feel like my emotions and my investment are not as grand as they should be and i think that part of it is that like there's that i find that same imbalance that it's the it's almost reverse phantom menace like phantom menace is like it's ultimately not needed but i enjoy it whereas this is like there's so much needed and yet like there's so much i so I don't want to say there's so little I take away, but there are so there are so many moments, notably the Anakin Padme stuff, that it's kind of like I can just so easily write it off because I'm just not invested in it at all. If I can um, just kind of surmise what we were talking about last week with The Phantom Menace, the problem with The Phantom Menace and the problem with this one is that George Lucas is filming a politics is not necessarily handled that well right and this movie is found like the foundation of this movie is in the political machinations so when you have people sitting in a chair talking about politics it's not necessarily interesting and there's lots of time in this movie that are not particularly interesting right it's a completely imbalanced movie you have a romance that from my 
book is not necessarily working because the chemistry is just not there. And then you have a Dick Tracy uh, investigation story in Obi-Wan that is more interesting. Yeah, absolutely. It's more intriguing, but at the same time, the pace of it and the way it's shot kind of is bogged down as well. And you get frustrated with both those aspects. And the cutting between them is just too much. It's so jarring. It's, I mean, it's hard for me to say that, but it's like, you're spending two minutes on Naboo, then you're going to go back to Obi-Wan for 10 minutes, then you're going to go back to Naboo for five minutes, then you're going to go back to, you know, it, you, the back and forth. It's is two just completely like, different movies. It's two completely different movies and you keep cutting between them. And it's just like, I'd rather just focus on, oh, I understand that this is important for Anakin, but Obi-Wan's story is a lot more interesting. Oh, 100%. And it's just... I, the balance of this movie is very off and the dialogue and the pol- like the way it's rooted in what it's rooted in are just like it, it it's weighed down so heavily yeah up until recently this was probably my least favorite star wars movie and i'm not saying this to like force you to but this time is probably the best time i had watching it Oh my god. That's because of the Clone Wars more than it has to do with this movie. I know I keep saying this, and again, not to make you feel bad, but the Clone Wars is like essential to making Anakin and Obi-Wan's relationship like workable. Well, because they jump ahead. They jump and even Padme and Anakin's relationship workable. Well, you have to get the context. And in the Clone Wars, you are able to work the politics and the relationships in a much more interesting way. I mean, I've heard people online say that, like, or I've heard people in real life say that, like, people, like, like Clone War, the Attack of the Clones is such a tease for what is actually such better storytelling in terms of all the clone stuff, in terms of all the Clone War, uh, you know, politics and all the, it's like, this is just a, a snippet of what it would become. And so it's like, in a way, I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but this goes back to some of the comments that we have made in the past where, and again, it's an easy answer, but this is really a mini series that is truncated into a movie. Had this been a mini series, I think it would have been exceptional because you could have lagged it out and expunged upon everything tenfold. But here, it's like you're spending five, like I said, you're spending five minutes on Naboo, then you're spending five minutes on Camino, then you go back to Naboo, then you go to Camino. It's like, yeah. You're trying to explore too much with too little time, yet the movie drags because it feels long. I think that it's not, I don't know if the movie itself should have, I mean, I think the story should have, would have worked better as a miniseries, which is, which is what you're saying. But I think that it, what it does is it gives leeway to an entire series in itself, which ends up being the Clone Wars. So I, I think I can excuse what I don't like about the movie in terms of it adding groundwork and pieces for what are much bigger stories in the Clone Wars. That being said, the last, I want to say 40 minutes of this movie, when you get to Geonosis, it's, it's, it's exceptional. It's, it totally saves everything. And I, I've been saying that for years and I really felt that this time I appreciated some of the stuff, but 
that I hadn't before, but it's really it's it's once you get to Geonosis, the whole movie shifts. It's like it's like a giant build up to that, and it makes and you let appreciate. Me, let it me more. just say when I say when you get to Geonosis, I don't really mean when you get to Geonosis, but when you get to the Colosseum, everything of course. picks up. Of course, and it's and it's great. There's not a not not, not a moment that is spared in that in that whole from then until the, the end of the movie. Everything not about a square it. to spare. It's almost like the whole, but that's what I was saying. It's like, I feel like you can't really truly appreciate it without kind of everything building up to it because between, you know, the, the half-assed romance or, you know, the stuff with um, the clones and the, and this, you know, all that, all the dialogue about that. And then, uh, you know, you've got the stuff with Anakin and his mother dying and like, it's, yeah, it's all, like we said, it's all good and building, but it's, it's because all the good stuff is really at the end that makes you appreciate it more. This is one of those movies that starts the trend of if you want to truly enjoy the and Marvel has definitely followed suit with this. It's like if you want to truly enjoy this movie, you have to do research around it. You can't like it's kind of weird to say, but like watching the movie just in of itself doesn't do it justice. You have to know context. You have to know more about the mystery of how the clones were created. You have to know uh, Palpatine's plan as a whole. You need to do research around it to understand what is going on. And once you understand what is going on, the politicking becomes more interesting. Yeah, I think at face value, anyone can enjoy this movie as is, but it can't be fully appreciated without the context. Yeah, I, I don't know if, like I said, a lot of people complain about this movie and it's warranted because the like we said the dialogue is very clunky the romance doesn't necessarily work the chemistry is like non-existent uh yeah, it's like and, slapping two movies together there's a lot there's a lot wrong with it but ultimately it i don't know like how i feel about phantom menace it's like it gets a bum rap and sure on the scale this is probably one of the worst star wars movies out of the main canon but it's also like it's still got great moments in it. You know what I mean? I mean, mm-hmm. everything uh, between the tension, like you said, like like the Dick Tracy plot is a good, is a good comparison of, of Obi-Wan's side quest. I mean, it really, all that stuff, um, you know, uh, it, 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 with the fight with Jango Fett in the rain and all these little moments in the fight and in its space. And it, because they're such small savory moments, I think it, it, it adds to the buildup of what makes a great ending. And I don't know. Yeah, I think, I, I think it works looking back and maybe this is because of the rise of skywalker folds like shroud is still over my head but like you said there are moments in this movie that work and the last 40 minutes are just like they save everything they save everything where you know you get to rise of skywalker and literally none of it works none of it and you're just like what the fuck is going on well that's right you have something (laughs) That's why when you were saying, um, and we'll of course touch on this down the road of our show, but I think what you, what you were saying, like you used to consider this, you know, the, the worst Star Wars movie. It's like, I was the same way. And it's like in watching later Star Wars movies, especially Rise of Skywalker, you know, not to tease that whole, that, that show, but it's like, you realize like how much, how good you really had it when someone's actually trying, even if the result is not great. You know yeah, what I mean? Something that we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast is, say what you will about this movie george lucas was pushing the envelope in ways that were not pushed in rise of skywalker he was taking leaps not just with technology but 
storytelling in general. It was a gamble. It, it so, was a gamble, and it paid off. Risk. You know, it made a lot of money, but yeah. it was definitely a gamble. And yeah. I, you know, it's just sad that it didn't necessarily work. But I'm again, I want to just in, I, I just want to push this again, and it, it's not to make you feel bad, but you watch Clone Wars, and Listen, you are son. truly like. It changes this movie and Revenge of the Sith in ways where you're just like enamored with everything that's happening. I know. I'm going to get around to it, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's a good place to end this podcast. Of course. Yeah, no, that's great. I'm, so tell uh, us, Josh, where can the good people find you? Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd under Beesh. It's exactly the way it sounds. B-E-E-S-H. Um, As always, Steven. you can follow me on Instagram and Letterboxd at Mr. Filmart, and you can follow the podcast on Instagram at Who's Filmography. And that concludes this week. Next week, once more, the Sith will rule the galaxy, and you, uh, we shall have peace. You got a pick of the week? Oh, I forgot about the pick of the week. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's we get it. That's a good one. <laughs> I mean, we could break we, we could break format and not go with it, but <laughs> I completely forgot. I'm gonna I am gonna change format here a little bit. I'm gonna say my pick of the week is the Clone War series. Fuck it, I'm changing the format a little bit. I think uh, I expressed throughout the final thoughts that how much I love that series and how much it helps this movie and even Revenge of the Sith. So, if you love the Star Wars universe. I think it's essential watching, but that's my pick. It's a great pick. Um, I'm going to go in same lieu as I did last week. I've been picking God's, uh, Roland Emmerich's Godzilla 98. I'm going to go with another uh, split. Um, I'm going to go with um, Batman vs. Superman, the Ultimate Edition. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I say it is that, you know, I'm, I've been getting, I, I like to get down with movies that people hate. And I say, no, there's something good here. And that's one that wasn't really till the director's cut. And I was like, oh, there's something worthwhile in a three-hour movie where two characters otherwise you know should be fighting but otherwise there's a lot of I, I really love the politicking of uh you know superheroes and good and evil and i think there's great things to be said about it among all the terrible things people have to say about it same thing with the clone wars it's more the critical reception than the comparison of the movies themselves mm -hmm. uh i think that even in the some of the biggest uh considered piles of uh of dog turds is to say the to be nice that people have to say about films like Batman vs Superman or any bad comic book movie, not any bad comic book movie, but a lot of bad comic book movies that are considered bad. As I think there are great things to take away if you look between the lines. You know what I mean? And so I, I feel like this, the ultimate edition of Batman vs Superman. It really makes that movie very, like you said, very much like the Clone Wars. The ultimate edition makes that movie. Uh, watchable. <laughs> right. There is extra context where you're like, oh, there actually is some good to take oh, away here. Superman so, does have a character. You know what I mean? So it's a, uh, I'm not going to dive into it. I mean, that's going to be too long. But like I said, I like things about the way the movie explores the politics of what makes a superhero someone worth having in, in, in a, you know, whatever. Uh, what, what makes um, a superhero uh, have any merit over having power in it? And I, I like these little dialogues here, but like you said, also character development and stuff. So um, I find yeah. both those movies giving in one camps. Of the, giving Superman a character definitely helps. Yeah, so, especially with his title in the in the uh, 
in the title of the film. Um, but yes, like we said for next week, you can uh, follow us where we said, and like I said, <laughs> next week the Sith take over, and, uh, and we shall have peace. We shall have <laughs> peace. So we will see you then. 